Welcome to the Wednesday Night Bible Study with Don Williams. This podcast is in honor of Don's legacy and teaching. He lived what he preached. Enjoy. The rest of Paul's letters, Colossians is four chapters, so it's not a long uh, letter, so it kind of stands toward the back of, uh, of uh, the Pauline uh, letter collection, uh, the library, Paul's library in the New Testament. So Galatians, Ephesians, and then uh, Philippians, and then Colossians. Uh, this is one of the so-called prison epistles of the New Testament, which means that Paul wrote this while he was in jail. And uh, let me tell you that my kind of my my teaching plan for Colossians is tonight to give us an overview and kind of set the set the stage for this letter. Uh, and we'll get into a, a, a little bit tonight, but we'll kind of get the big picture. And then uh, next uh, Wednesday night we'll. Uh, do chapter 1, and then we'll do chapters 2, 3, and 4, and there'll be a study guide available for you as you leave, leave if you'd like to uh, uh, work, work on chapter 1 during the week. Um, that'll take us up right uh, close to Christmas, and then we're going to take two weeks off. I think it, it's the last two Wednesdays of the year, which would be the, the Wednesday before uh, Christmas, and then the one between Christmas and New Year's. So we'll take those two Wednesdays off, and then we'll come back We'll do Colossians, and then we'll take a holiday break, and then we'll be back to uh, uh, continue our study in the new year. So, turn with me to Colossians again, and let me just, uh, I'm, I'm going to read um, uh, part of chapter 1, and then uh, some of chapter 4, and then we'll, that, that'll help us to kind of set, set the stage for this letter. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, and remember, uh, here, brothers, this does not include this. You know, does not uh, um, exclude uh, the women. I want you to know that it's a generic term. Uh, it means family members. Okay, grace uh, and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, and the faith and the love that spring from hope, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, <clears throat> who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through our spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, Paul at this point talks about the magnificence and uh, centrality and supremacy of Christ, starting in verse 15. So that he is the image of the invisible God, refers to Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood, uh, through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, now uh, turn over to chapter 4, and I want to pick up, uh, this. these are 
kind of the practical, uh, not the practical, but the personal uh, remarks at the end of the letter, starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ, Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Okay, so... At the beginning of the letter, Paul says some personal things about, uh, about, uh, uh, especially about Epaphras and the news that he's received about the church and, and, uh, uh, and how they become Christians and what have you. At the end of the letter, he gives, uh, uh, again, a, lo- a lot of personal greetings and says some things about his circumstances. So, uh, again, in terms of kind of framing the letter to begin with, notice, first of all, that Paul, we've already said this, Paul writes this letter from prison, okay? Uh, Look again at chapter 4 at verse 3. Paul says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So there we have a reference to the fact that Paul is in prison. Again in uh, verse 10 of chapter 4, we already read this, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. And then again in 4.18, and we read this, Paul says, Remember my chains. So fellow prisoner, one who's in prison with me, uh, Paul talks about his uh, uh, being in chains for the gospel, for the mystery of Christ, which he proclaims. And then when he says, remember my chains, uh, certainly that, that would be remember that, that I'm in prison, but I think that what Paul's really asking for them to do is to pray for him while he's in prison. Remember me before the Lord, we could maybe put in parentheses, you know, as I'm in chains. So Paul, uh, again, writes this letter, and uh, while he's in prison, which would put it in the early 60s, uh, Paul's conversion took place in the early 30s. Uh, Paul now has been a missionary for Jesus Christ, an apostle uh, for about 30 years. Uh, he's in Rome and he's uh, wa- awaiting the outcome of his uh, being arrested for uh, his uh, faith in Jesus Christ. The persecution has begun to settle in on the church, at least sporadically. Paul himself is, is uh, waiting the final uh, trial uh, uh, in Rome and uh, and. and so it's in that context then he, that he writes this letter. Now, something that I said before, and this is kind of you know in passing, but let me say it again because I think it's a good point for us tonight, and that is you can't keep a good apostle down, okay? Uh, whoever Paul is, he's still in business. Um, and uh, so although obviously he's restricted in terms of what he can do at this point, in terms of travel and the freedom to evangelize and what have you, he continues to do what God's called him to do, in prison, and I think that um, that this, there's something for us here, and that is that many times we can feel that we're captive to our circumstances, and and we think, you know, if if my circumstances just changed, then I would really be happy, you know, or you know, if I could just get out of the mess that I'm in, and for some of us who are maybe in financial messes and things like that, you know, that I'm not disputing that there may be some truth in that, you know, I mean. Uh, my wife and I were on vacation last week, and we were up in Little River, which is near Mendocino and Fort Bragg in Northern California, and uh, the change in circumstances did us good, believe me. We had a wonderful week together, and, uh, and it wasn't at all bad to get away, you know. Getting, I mean, getting away from La Jolla is kind of silly, you know, and we went up the coast and then spent a week looking at the Pacific Ocean from up there so that we could come back down here and look at the Pacific Ocean here, which you know, doesn't, you know, we probably should have gone to the desert or something, but... Uh, but no, it was really wonderful. And, and so circumstances certainly do affect our lives. But what I want, want to say to us tonight is 
that God wants to set us free from circumstances determining our lives and especially determining, you might say, the attitude, the inner sense of peace, comfort, confidence that we have. Because that needs to be determined by nothing less than Jesus Christ Himself. And it's in Him that we can really deal with our circumstances. So what we see from Paul, although Paul's in prison, he's close to perhaps the end of his life, he doesn't know. Again, in Philippians, he hopes to be released, but he's uncertain about the outcome. And yet here we have, again, as we saw in Philippians, Paul rejoicing and calling upon the church to rejoice while he's under guard 24 hours a day. He makes several references here to his chains, which I don't think are just metaphorical, uh, uh, quite certainly Paul was uh, chained to a Roman soldier um, uh, at this point in his, uh, in his uh, life. And, uh, and that, I mean, can you imagine, I mean, marriage is hard enough. Can you imagine being chained to somebody 24 hours, you know, having a rotating guard being chained to someone? I mean, that, that's really a bummer, isn't it? I mean, that, I mean, I can't think of anything that would be harder you know, than, to, than to be chained to somebody, you know? I mean, it would be, I, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, the poor Roman soldiers being chained to Paul, you know, but I, also we should have a certain, you know, sympathy toward Paul in those circumstances. But here he is, and yet at this point, Paul is continuing to carry on his ministry. Uh, for example, uh, Paul continues to evangelize. In other words, Paul continues to proclaim the gospel and bring people into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Look again at chapter 4. I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove this to you. <clears throat> At verse 9, Paul talks about this brother Tychicus who's going to go uh, uh, to the church, to the Colossians and, uh, and what have you. And then in verse 9 he says, He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. In other words, he comes from the environs of, uh, of, of Colossae, uh, from, from that area, that geographical area. They will tell you everything that is happening here. So Paul here mentions Onesimus. Uh, and now, uh, Keep a thumb there and just turn over a few pages to Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon, which is the last letter, it's before Hebrews. And by the way, it's, in most New Testaments, it's just a page. So if the pages of your Bible stick together, you may have never even seen Philemon. So some of you, this may be a surprise to see this little letter here tonight. But uh, Paul's letter to Philemon, <clears throat> and <clears throat> there's, it's just one chapter. Look at verse 8. Uh, Paul says, uh, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, uh, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love, I then, as Paul, an old man or an ambassador, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, now he's become useful both to you and to me. We're going to study this letter sometime later. But look at Onesimus' name there, you see. And, and, and then look at what Paul says about him. He says, who became my son uh, while I was in chains. I think literally in the Greek, who was begotten uh, by me while I was in chains. Well, let me assure you that Paul didn't have a baby in prison. What's he talking about here? Paul's talking about the fact that Onesimus was born again. He was regenerated by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul as he shared shared his faith in Christ with this young man. Now, as it turns out, and we'll study this later, he was a runaway slave who'd come to Rome from the, this, the area of, of Colossae, which is in the province of Asia, which is now uh, on the western, in the western part of modern Turkey. So he had journeyed, you know, if we were looking at our map today, from Turkey through Greece, and then on, you know, across the, the Aegean Sea uh, uh, to Italy, and, and then to Rome. So there's a major travel distance for, uh, for Onesimus, this runaway slave, but through some circumstances which we're not entirely certain of, he found himself brought into relationship with Paul, and Paul led him to Christ. And he's a runaway slave, and so this letter has to do with Paul's returning him to his master, since Paul had also won his master to Christ some years before. So, uh, so here's Paul sharing the gospel uh, in prison, and here's Onesimus as one of the, the uh, you know, uh, of Paul's converts through his evangelistic ministry. At the same time, not only is Paul continuing to evangelize, but he's also obviously discipling uh, uh, those Christians around him in the faith, and they're becoming more effective in their ministry. And so, uh, look at all the names that appear at the end of this letter. There's Tychicus in verse 7, and Paul says he's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of Christ. So he's ministering, he's serving Christ, and uh, and, and Paul uh, 
uh, is sending him now to the church in Colossae to uh, to uh, continue uh, his ministry with these uh, these uh, relatively new converts. In verse 10, he talks about Aristarchus as a fellow prisoner, also Mark, uh, who is Barnabas' cousin, and Barnabas goes back to the earliest uh, period of the church, and uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas had a falling out and, and over uh, John Mark at one time. That now has obviously been healed. Mark is now engaged, engaged again uh, with ministry uh, uh, with Paul. In verse 11, there's Jesus, who is called Justice, who is also, Paul uh, describes him as a fellow worker. Then in verse 12, Epaphras, and we'll say more about him in just a few minutes. He's a servant of, of Christ Jesus. And also from Colossae, he's one of you. And then in verse 14, Paul mentions Luke and Demas. So here's a whole network of relationships of people who are immediately gathered around Paul. Why are they there? What are they doing? Hang out in prison all the time? You know, I mean, are they playing, you know, gin rummy? You know, why are these people all hanging around Paul? Well, clearly the answer is not only because they're friends, because Paul talks about various ministry functions that they're carrying out. They're gathered around Paul because Paul is continuing to disciple them and instruct them in the faith and encourage them and nurture them so that they can extend his ministry. And so he's not trapped within his circumstances. He's able to evangelize as unsaved people. Non-Christians are brought to him. He's able to continue to minister to those disciples who are immediately around him and equip them and train them for ministry and then dispatch them on various missions. And uh, Tychicus and Onesimus, the runaway slave who's become a brother now, are being sent back uh, to their home uh, and, uh, and and what have you. So so uh, so what we see is then these net, this network of relationships around Paul uh, continuing uh, his discipling ministry, okay? At the same time, Paul also continues his pastoral ministry in terms of oversight over his churches. And this letter is one of the means of ministry. So what's Paul doing? He's talking to non-Christians about Jesus, he's discipling Christians, and he's writing letters, and we have several letters from his imprisonment, uh, Ephesians and Philippians as well as Colossians, and there are other letters that aren't in the New Testament, clearly that Paul was writing at that time. Uh, they don't, they're not a part of the canon of the New Testament. So Paul is continuing to pastor his churches and solve problems and, uh, and uh, exercise oversight over his churches while he's in prison. Now, uh, one of the things that we learned from this letter also is Paul's strategy in terms of evangelism and church planning and church growth. And I want to say a little bit about that. And, and this centers on this man, Epaphras. Look back at chapter 1, at verse 7. Paul talks about how the gospel is spread to the Colossians. And... Uh, and uh, and it's growing and bearing fruit in all the world. But look at verse 7. He says, You, Colossians, learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So, Epaphras was the evangelist who preached the gospel in Colossae, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and who brought, uh, brought this church into being, and Paul... I want you to notice this phrase particularly. Paul says, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So, Paul couldn't go to Colossae, but Epaphras, who had been discipled, probably evangelized, in other words, he'd been won to Christ through Paul, Epaphras represented Paul by going to Colossae and preaching the gospel there and bringing the church into being, and then he reports what's going on in the church back to Paul. Um, Look at chapter 4 at verse 12. Uh, uh, Paul uh, makes his second reference to Epaphras. Epaphras not only uh, uh, taught the gospel to those in Colossae on Paul's behalf and then told uh, Paul of their love in the Spirit. In 4.12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ. Now, notice the phrase, one of you. In other words, he's a native of Colossae who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. So Epaphras established the church. Um, now he's with Paul in Rome. He sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. He's not able to nurture the, the Colossians and continue evangelizing in Colossae because he's in Rome. So what's he doing uh, in a sense to continue his ministry with them? And the answer is he's praying for them. And look at, look at we'll, you know, we'll talk about this in a few weeks when we get to this chapter. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. You know, that's a violent kind of praying. He's contending. You know, he's pouring himself out and he's going against the powers of darkness through his prayers and intercession for you. 
that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you. Well, how is he working hard for you? In the context, through prayer. Prayer is hard work here. It's not just, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to And, uh, you know, uh, bless this bunch while they munch their lunch, thank you, Lord, you know, and what have you. I mean, it's just, you know, not, or even, you know, our Father who art in heaven, heaven be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will. Epaphras is wrestling in prayer. He's laboring on behalf of the Colossians. In other words, he's engaged, we'll say more about this later, in spiritual warfare on their behalf. So, he says, I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis, which are adjoining communities to Colossae. They're cities nearby. So, uh, you might say, in a sense, Epaphras has a district that he is responsible for. He's evangelized it. He's established the churches there, or at least the church in Colossae. We know that for sure. He's now praying for them and what have you. He's reported to Paul uh, concerning the fruit of, of his labor and the state of the church. Again, uh, if you have maps of your Bible, you might even want to turn back there, but I'll just describe it in case you don't. But, but if you look at a map of, of the Mediterranean world, again, you'll see Turkey, and, and on the western part of Turkey, the province of Asia, and then you'll see Ephesus on the, on the coast. Uh, Ephesus was a port city. It was one of the four largest cities of the, of the ancient Roman Empire. It was a magnificent city. Uh, years ago now, 1958, my cousin and I traveled, made the Holy Land tour. Our parents said, oh, you're going to the ministry? Well, we'll send you to the Holy Land. And so uh, I just graduated from college, and my cousin was just starting seminary. He'd been in the Navy. He's a little older than I am. And he ended up, his name is Dave Walker, he ended up as the pastor of the Claremont United Methodist Church here in San Diego, um, and and then left that church and has been up in Anaheim, and he's close to retirement now. But anyway, we made the Holy Land journey, and we went to Ephesus. So I've been there, and walked among the ruins of this city, and it, it is absolutely incredible. If you know, if you remember anything about Ephesus and Paul's ministry there, there was a point at which he was dragged into the theater and uh, there was this riot that broke out. He, well, they didn't get Paul into the theater, but others were dragged into, other Christians were dragged into the theater. There was a riot, and what have you. Well, uh, that theater stands today, uh, and uh, and it seats 20,000 people. And uh, it's really a magnificent, um, in a magnificent setting. But, uh, uh, Ephesus was, was such a wealthy city that the streets were literally paved with marble, the, 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 the main streets. They used marble for their paving blocks. And uh, uh, anyway, Paul had a ministry in Ephesus, a substantial ministry. According to Acts chapter 18 and verse 19, he visited briefly. But then in Acts chapter 19, he returned and spent two years in Ephesus. So Paul planted himself in a major city, which among other things was, was really the communications hub for the whole surrounding area. And what I think we see here in Colossians, in terms of Paul's relationship with this man Epaphras, is Paul's strategy for evangelism. And that is, and I think this developed over a period of time, and Roland Allen wrote a book years ago entitled Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. The theme of this book was that Paul went to the major cities of the empire, and he built churches there and spent substantial periods of time there, like Corinth and Ephesus. And what he would do is he would... Uh, uh, he also, of course, in a sense, evangelized in, in the smaller communities and what have you. But, but this strategy developed where Paul would would uh, spend a major amount of time in a major city where uh, soldiers and uh, and government employees, civil servants, and what have you, and uh, and uh, tourists and traders were constantly coming and going. And uh, I think this cat is very hungry and probably not for the Bible tonight. But so, um, Chris, you're going to have to take it home and feed it out later. What? Oh, pet it. Okay. All right. Well, your job is to pet the cat then for the next uh, 25 minutes while we wrap up this Bible study. Okay. Anyway, um, um, what was I saying? Okay. So, so, so anyway, so Paul, what Paul did was he stationed himself in, in these, you know, centers of communication. And thus, he could not only reach the residential populace, but he also reached uh, you know, people who are in the military, who are uh, travelers and traders and businessmen and what have you, who are coming into these centers and then leaving. And uh, and and the point that Roland Allen made in this book, uh, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, is that most of our missionary dollars and energy has gone into evangelizing primitive tribes in jungles and kind of 
backwaters, and we have basically neglected the great urban areas of the world. But but the evangelistic strategy of the New Testament, especially if Paul was to go to the great urban centers, because there you can reach people who will then communicate the gospel, uh, you know, beyond those centers. But rather than exhausting himself, you know, learning uh, some language of, uh, you know, of some tribe and, and going into the backwoods for, for 30 or 40 years and maybe ending up with two or 300 converts, what Paul did was he centered on the great cosmopolitan centers, cultural and economic and religious and uh, military and civil centers, and was able then to, the gospel then just spread like wildfire through those that Paul equipped and trained to then take the gospel back to their own people. And I think that's exactly what's going on in this letter. And Epaphras, when Paul says he was a minister on our behalf, in other words, he represented Paul beyond where Paul could go personally, and then Paul says, and he was one of you. Listen, the best missionary is somebody who is uh, immediately identified with the culture to which they're communicating the gospel, into which they're communicating the gospel. Uh, I mean, you know, a little example would be, I am not a great missionary to the surf community here in La Jolla. Now, let me tell you the reasons for that. Number one, I don't surf. I mean, that's the, that's the, the most obvious reason. But number two, I'm 57 years of age. And the, I mean, there are older surfers in this community, uh, for sure, you know, but, but in terms of especially reaching younger people in this community, you know, I'm just really old. So, uh, so that, that's, that's the second problem that I would have. And thirdly, have you ever been around hardcore surfers? I mean, especially, you know, in terms of younger people. I mean, their language, they have a whole different language system. I mean, really, you know, you have to be a, like these Wycliffe Bible translators, you know, who go in and learn the language and then try to, you know, I mean, you know, it's just, I mean, there are a few common English words scattered among it, you know, in the midst of it, so you can kind of tune in on, what's going on, but when you talk to somebody who's just talking surf language, uh, you know, you realize you're from another world. So, what I'm saying is, you know, for us, for me anyway, you, you know, uh, at my age, with my kind of educational background and, and what have you, I'm just not the right person to reach surfers in this community. But, you take a Jay Hohn, who's on our staff, you know, who worked for Rusty Surfboards, ran his factory for five years, and who talks surf language and who surfs, you know, and he's, Jay's a good athlete, and what have you, or a Peter King. I mean, they're just, they're right in the middle of that. So, so if I want to evangelize the surf community, I shouldn't grow my hair long, you know, diet, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, blonde, and, you know, and try to stand up on a board somewhere, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that would really be silly. <laughs> yeah. What I need to do, See, if I can reach one surfer who can reach surfers, that's all I need to do. And, uh, you know, and so, I mean, and, and, you know, and honestly, I think that's part of the strategy that God's unfolded for our church here. And I think the Lord, I mean, I really believe this. I believe the Lord, through a, a journey of a, almost six years for the Coast Vineyard from Del Mar through Sorrento Valley and what have you, brought us into this building, placed us here in this community, put us really in the middle of a whole kind of a, a line of communication between the junior high school and the high school, which I think will be exploited for the gospel increasingly in the years to come. I, we're, we're kind of just on the edge of that right now. But I really believe that that's part of God's agenda for us. But we also are just a stone's throw from Windensea, you know, which is one of the major surf spots here, in, not just in La Jolla, but people come from all over to surf there. And, you know, and the Lord has raised up our Tuesday night fellowship here, um, which usually has 80... 90 people here on Tuesday nights, and there's just been a stream of people who've come to Christ through Tuesday night, and it's been oriented toward the surf community. You see, and that's Paul's strategy. I mean, it would be silly for me, you know, to try to gather some middle-aged women together to have a Bible study. I, I mean, it might not be silly, but uh, say that's a good idea. <laughs> I thought of that. No, uh, my wife might have. Well, she did. But, but. You know, Jinx Whitehill, who's come on our church staff, who's middle-aged, sorry Jinx, but you are, and, you know, and, 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 and Jinx's husband Rick is also now working on our staff as well, and Rick has been a psychologist at, on the faculty at UC, they've been established in this area for a long time and what have you. Jinx now has a women's study, and, and she's able to relate to women in terms of the issues in their lives and their needs and what have you in a way that I could never do that. 
So I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, this is God's strategy to find that person or those persons who come out of a particular world or slice of the culture or socioeconomic group and then put that person back into that group. You know, to be able to reach the, those people there that, you know, uh, it, it's just a natural thing. And so, it's not that Paul couldn't have evangelized uh, Colossae. I totally believe that he could have. But in terms of the economy of time and energy, Paul planned himself in Ephesus and then dispatched these uh, men that he had trained for ministry and really they fanned out over the whole area. And so Epaphras now, having brought uh, the gospel to Colossae, um, uh, is uh, reporting to Paul, has reported to Paul, and, uh, and he has all the advantage of being a native of that community, knowing its language, its customs, its background, being able to communicate into it. He's been trained by Paul uh, uh, in Ephesus, uh, so he goes on his behalf back to Colossae, and now after, after having established the church there, and of course uh, having to deal with issues that have arisen in the ministry, he's reported this to Paul in Rome, and as a consequence, Paul writes this letter to address those issues. So... Um, so I, what I'm saying uh, is that uh, that the gospel largely was spread. Although we, you know, we uh, honor rightly so Peter and Paul and the other apostles, but the gospel was largely spread by unknowns like this man Epaphras, who just, you know, some of them just pop up for a few verses and then vanish away from the New Testament. But the gospel was spread largely by by, by people that uh, that we don't remember or don't know their names. Uh, but to, who uh, uh, you know carried that message back into their own world, and, and uh, uh, to use a phrase uh, from a friend of mine, they mined the veins of their relationships in communicating the gospel. And let me let me just challenge us tonight and and say to each of us that that there's there are worlds that we operate in where Jesus Christ is is not known or loved or served or submitted to, and uh, at least for most of us. And, in a sense, we're the epiphras in that world. Maybe family, maybe, you know, close friends, maybe neighborhoods, maybe business associates, maybe fellow students, wherever it is. You know, we're, we're representing Jesus Christ in those worlds. And many times we think, oh gosh, if, you know, if, if Don were here or Jay or somebody was here, Billy Graham or what have you, you know, we could really uh, things would really happen. That's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily true. Because the most, the, the most likely people to reach others are those who have the relationships already. And the gospel basically moves, believe it or not, by relationships. That's the way the gospel basically moves. By meeting people, getting to know them, sharing Christ with them, or sharing Christ within this context of the relationships that you already have. It's been estimated that after a person becomes a Christian, within two years they lose all their non-Christian friends. And and they lose them for a number of reasons. Number one, they may well win some of them to the Lord, and so they become Christians. And that's the that's the best way to lose your non-Christian friends, is to convert them, okay? So that's that's number one. But number two, also, they may be rejected by their non-Christian friends. Like, you know, gee, you don't party with us anymore, and you're, oh, well, you're going to Bible studies, and, you know, what's wrong with you, you know... Uh, we just don't have anything in common anymore. So that's another thing. But the other thing is, the other reason for that, and this is the bad reason, is that we become so withdrawn from the world into our own kind of Christian network and friendships that we are no longer really in contact with those who don't know the Lord. And so we can really, in a sense, lose that opportunity and that cutting edge. And so one of the things to pray for, if you're in danger of that, and I'm probably the most in danger of that, because here I am, you know, up to my ears in church all the time. And one of the things that I really have to work on and pray for is that God will keep me in touch with non-Christians. And I'll be kind of looking for them, you know, in the midst of all the other things going on. But this is the way the gospel spreads. Okay, well let me say a word then about the, this letter itself, uh, uh, just to give you a little overview. I purposely read into uh, the heart of chapter 1 because what Paul does is, after he, the, the salutation and his prayer of thanksgiving and intercession, which goes... Uh, formally through verse 14. He then talks about Jesus Christ. Look at it. He is the image. This is in verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By the way, and we'll come, we'll be looking at this in some detail next week, but these great phrases are worth just meditating on, just halting at and sitting, sitting before. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible. You want to see God like people? Just show me God. God has made Himself showable. God has shown Himself in the incarnation, in His, you know, in His Son. This is the meaning of Christmas. The invisible God has taken on an image. In other words, He can be imaged. He is imaged in His Son. The firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth visible. Look at what Paul's saying here. By Him all things were created. Do you mean that Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean carpenter, is the one through whom all things came into existence? And the answer is yes, if you add to Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean carpenter, the eternal Son of God, who took on our flesh and blood to live you know, human life in this world. So it's through the divine Son who incarnates himself as a human being in this world that all of creation comes into existence. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's absolutely incredible. That a person walked around on this planet and was the, the means through which the whole of creation came into existence and is not only created by him, but Paul goes on and says it's created for him and in him it all is, consists or is upheld or holds together in him. That Jesus Christ is the center of all things. He brings it into existence. It finds its purpose and destiny in him. And in the meantime, not the law of gravity, but Jesus Christ himself, not gravity, but Jesus Christ himself holds all existence together, upholds it. So what we have here in this letter, and it's one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament concerning who Christ is, Paul, after giving you know, his greetings and his prayers and what have you, launches into this incredible, cosmic, overwhelming, magnificent, glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And he paints that uh, uh, in chapter 1, because, and as we'll learn, uh, in chapter 2, we find out that this church is being troubled by false teaching. And it's under attack by those who would subvert the gospel. And the critical issue is, who is Jesus Christ? And is he, you know, absolute, the sovereign Lord, the eternal Son of God, and is he final and adequate and complete for all of life, or do you need Christ plus a lot of other uh, angelic or so-called divine beings or, uh, uh, or what have you? So where does he fit in the whole scope of things? And what Paul is saying here as a positive statement in chapter 1 before he deals with the confrontation with heresy and error in chapter 2 is that Jesus Christ is the one through whom everything came into being. All things exist for him and he's absolutely sufficient and adequate for everything and therefore, when you have him, why would you want anything else? This is the, the, the fundamental argument in this letter. It's kind of like tomorrow is Thanksgiving, and it's as if you went, you know, and had a huge Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, you had mashed potatoes until they're coming out your ears. You, you know, chomped on a whole turkey leg, you know, and you had mounds of stuffing and gravy over everything, and then green beans, and, you know, the whole meal, uh, you know, and you were just, have you ever done this? I mean, I, I, I'm not going to do this tomorrow. I promise I won't do this tomorrow. But, but I have done this in the past. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, you can sit down with family and it tastes so good and you just keep eating and eating and eating and eating and it's getting more and more uncomfortable and you're kind of loosening your belt. And, but you see, you have this huge meal and you're just absolutely satiated with food and you're just kind of moaning and groaning. And then somebody walks up to you and says, would you like to go out to dinner? Are you kidding? Would I like to go out to dinner? I can't, you know, I can't move from this table. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, or let's order pizza. You know, are you kidding? You know, I'm going to go into the bathroom and I'll be there for several hours. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And, and this is, this is Paul's strategy here in Colossians. In other words, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for it, uh, through Him, by Him, all things were created. And, you know, uh, thrones and dominions and principalities, what have you. See, in other words, see how big Jesus Christ is, and you'll not have a taste for anything else. And let me tell you, that's absolutely relevant today, and if you don't believe it, I'm going to make reference to this later, but go get a copy of Newsweek this week, because Newsweek has as its cover 
and then it's, you know, it's, it's feature article and it's, and it's the cover of Newsweek magazine, the great new spirituality that is, you know, flooding our nation. And as they begin the article, they talk about this woman who, who grew up in, in a Pentecostal church somewhere, and then she's been through this spiritual pilgrimage and what have you. She's ended up, she has an altar in her home with a Buddha on the altar and crystals hanging and, uh, and, and, and a bottle of holy water that got blessed at some women's uh, event somewhere. And, uh, and, and, and she has a, a, you know, did I say a plastic, little plastic image of an angel? And, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm so religious, you know, you know, if you've got anything religious, just send it my way and I'll put it on my altar. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's panthe, it, it's polytheism, not pantheism, but polytheism. I mean, it's like having a God shelf, you know, and, 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 and this leads into this great spiritual renaissance in our nation. Well, as we'll see, this is pretty relevant what Paul's dealing with in this church and what Paul is saying to these new converts is, look, don't traffic in that stuff because Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. He's the one that you're complete in and, in a sense, be filled with Him, you know, like that Thanksgiving dinner, and then you won't have an appetite for anything else. Listen, the greatest inoculation that we can give to new Christians against all the heresies in this world is to give them the big picture of Jesus Christ. And you know, what's really wonderful in this letter is that, again, Paul's writing to a, a, a little band of believers in Colossae. He's never met them. You know, he doesn't know. Uh, he only knows secondhand about them. But he's not afraid to say, look at who Jesus Christ is and look into his face, look into his glory, look into his fullness. That's the answer to, to, to the deepest longings of your heart and to the, you know, and, and to the, the destiny that God has for you. So that's what Paul does in chapter one, the great positive picture of Christ. Chapter two, then he then enters into an adversarial stance against the heresy that's endangering the church. And then in chapter three, he goes on and talks about the Christian life. How do you, how do you live out uh, this life, you know, in the context of the fullness of Christ? And then in chapter four, he gives final exhortations and greetings and what have you and wraps the letter up. So what you see is here's Paul in prison, winning Onesimus to Christ, training up his disciples, uh, you know, fellow ministers and servants of the gospel, sending them out to continue his ministry, and then writing this letter to pastor these Christians that he's never met, you know, pouring himself out for them, praying for them, and writing this letter to defend the faith in Colossae and, uh, uh, and, and to continue, you know, the, the, the calling that God has placed upon his life. That's probably enough for tonight. Um, well, okay, we'll, we'll wrap up with just a little bit of the letter. Uh, and this, this, this will only just be two or three minutes. But let, let's just go through the first eight verses uh, tonight. I just, I just want to point out just a couple things here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Again, Paul, he's, he's writing to uh, Christians that he's never met, so he stresses his authority, his right to write this letter, okay, to, to oversee and shepherd this church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, and again, Timothy is Paul's lieutenant, um, and and so common, often Paul will include Timothy in a sense in the authority and the authorship of his letters, although he himself is the one who's writing it. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Notice they're holy, namely they've been separated from the world, they've been brought out of the world into into Christ. As he says later in the first chapter, they've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Okay? So they're holy. They're separated from the world. They're faithful. Um, and again, the church is threatened with heresy, so Paul's writing those who are faithful to the gospel. They're faithful, and they're brothers. They're family members. And they find their new identity and relationship in Christ, and then they live in this town of Colossae. Then grace to you uh, from God our Father. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then Paul gives a standard blessing here. And then he launches into the prayer, and it is always is divided formally again into thanksgiving and then into intercession. So Paul begins with thanksgiving. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith. Again, Paul only knows them secondhand. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. 
and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Now, what I want to point out, and we'll, this will bring our, our study to a close tonight, look at the three words here. Your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Paul loves this little triad, okay? And we know it probably, we're the most familiar with it in terms, because of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love, and how it comes at the end of that chapter, Paul writes, uh, now by these, these three, um, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So the order that he uses there is faith, hope, and love. And so we often think about it in terms of faith, hope, and love, but, uh, at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, as well as here in, in Colossians in chapter 1, Paul uses what would be the normal, uh, the normal order, and the normal order isn't faith, hope, and love. Paul puts love at the end in 1 Corinthians 13 because that's his key point. Faith turns to sight, hope is fulfilled, love endures. Love never ends. You know, love will go on. You want to know what the great theme of all eternity will be in the presence of the Father, the Son, in the, in, in the life of the Spirit, it's going to be love. And that's where we're going. We're going to the greatest celebration of love that we could ever imagine. Uh, and, and that's the fulfillment of God's purpose for us. What are the two great commandments? So love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. Where will they be perfectly fulfilled? In the presence of God. We will love Him perfectly. We'll experience His perfect love and we'll love each other perfectly, and there will be no sin, no sorrow, no separation, no dysfunctional family. I become a Christian, I'm born again, you know, and what have you, but there's absolutely no, apparently no difference in their lives. Well, what does saving faith produce? It produces love. So Paul says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And again, the saints aren't the saintly. I mean, saints should be saintly, okay? But the saints are those who've been separated from the world unto Christ. You know, and then we're becoming saintly. And some, you know, Mother Teresa is more saintly than I am, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, so the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from hope, the hope that's stored up for you in heaven. So, we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we love each other, and then we live with this great sense of hope, which we have in heaven. And it's stored up for us. And, and that, listen, you cannot live in this life in any healthy way without hope. I think the greatest tragedy that can happen to any human being in this world is to lose hope, to, to, to absolutely lose hope. Um, and I have had friends and, and one who is uh, marginally related to our church here who have taken their lives, who committed suicide, because finally they had no hope at all. And people, you know, with terminal diseases, you know, why, why is the issue of euthanasia before us? And I, I personally am not an advocate of euthanasia, but the reason is because, you know, people, you know, reach a point in terms of terminal illness where they, they're absolutely destitute of hope. They have no reason, no meaning in life, no, you know, no hope for healing or cure, no purpose in living, and, and they just, and they give up. Um, one of the things that happened at the end of the Korean War, after the Korean War, was that uh, there was a high mortality rate among prisoners of war that were held in North Korea. And the army investigated that to find out why it was that uh, uh, the mortality rate was so high and why prisoners literally died uh, behind the lines uh, you know, when they were in prison in North Korea. And the answer was because they gave up. Is that simple? And what the North Koreans did, it was very wise. They separated out the officers who would have a higher code of resistance, you know, while in prison, and they separated out the Christians. And the place where there was so much despair and so much, you know, of people just dying with a loss of hope was among those who had no faith and didn't have any, in a sense, authority, officer authority, you know, continuing to kind of hold them together to struggle against the enemy. And they gave up and they died. So what do we need? We need faith in Jesus Christ. We need to love each other. And we need to be held by the hope that we have of that inheritance that stands before us. And that's the Christian life. 
if the Apostle Paul were here tonight, and since he is in this letter, you'd say, oh, well, you know, all these doctrines and all these churches, and I just don't, I don't know what it, you know, what is Christianity? This book is so big and it's so hard to understand. What have you? Okay, we'll just make it really simple. <laughs> we'll just boil it down for you. We'll just give it to you where anybody can get a hold of it. I, this is something I wanted to have in my sermon Sunday and I forgot it. But anyway, I was talking about Jesus saying, feed my sheep. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was one of the great Victorian preachers of the 19th century, he said, you know, Jesus said to feed my sheep, but uh, some, some ministers put the food so high, they think Jesus said, feed my giraffes. <laughs> well, he didn't. <laughs> Cute, isn't it? Anyway, he said, feed my sheep, and, and here it is, you know, right down where you can just munch on it. It's really simple. Faith, love, hope. That's it. You want to summarize the Christian life? You want to be able to tell people why you're a Christian? Just say, it's really simple. Here it is. It's faith, love, and hope. That's it. God, you know, just blessed me to believe in His Son. He's put a love in my heart for people, and I have a great hope for the future. That's it. And again and again, you know, some of us, you know, we've been here for a while off and on together. You know, we've studied through Romans and these great, you know, theological letters of Paul, and, and they are. They're, they're, they're profound and deep and beyond any, you know, complete comprehension. But here's Paul's greatness. He can really wrestle with the deep, profound theological issues, and then he can come right down to something that's so simple that a slave, runaway slave in Rome can be grasped by it. Anybody can, you know, can get their hands on this. And we can take this tonight. Just think about this for the rest of the week. Okay, it's really simple, isn't it? For the rest of the week, I'll just trust Jesus with my life. I'll ask God to give me the grace to love the people around me. And I'll just keep that inner sense of hope that I have. That this life isn't all that there is. And there's a great, glorious inheritance for me. And maybe that sense of hope, when there's so much cynicism, and so much despair in our world today that will just touch someone else's lives around them. I believe it will. Well, we're going to say goodnight to the kitty and to each other.